History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is Episode 62, Death in Quick Succession. Before we launch into the episode, I want to continue to remind people about my recent guest episodes on the Oldest Stories podcast. If you want to hear me talk about the Elamites, the people who ruled southern Iran long before the Persians in the Bronze Age, that's the place to do it. There was a sneak preview in the last episode in the feed, labeled Elamite Teaser, and you can find links to the podcast in the description down below. I also just want to throw in, at the very last minute before this goes public, that I did an appearance on the Ask Historians podcast with Ask Historians from Reddit. I'll also be putting links to that in the description from when I talked about the Cyrus Cylinder, how it's important to Achaemenid history, which you've already heard about plenty on this podcast, but also how it's important to modern history, important to religious beliefs, and important to the history of modern Iran. Again, that's the Ask Historians podcasts, links in the description. But back to Persian history, the mid-460s BCE were a tumultuous few years in the history of Persia. In the northwest, on the coasts of Anatolia, the situation had finally stabilized in favor of Athens following the Battle of the Eurymedon, though the exact sequence of events is, of course, up for debate. But that was, frankly, a small sliver of the empire. Don't get me wrong, The loss of the Aegean fleet twice over, the loss of most of the Anatolian coast, and almost 30 years of pouring resources and treasure into the region were all important. 
I think too many modern Achaemenid historians of the last 30 years have downplayed that importance to make up for centuries of overemphasis. But they are right in that it was a regional frontier. Similar things were taking place in the less literate and very poorly documented environs of the steppe, and maybe even India, though we'll get into that some more a different time. After almost a century of expansionist wars, it was no wonder that the Persians were facing regular friction on their borders. But many of those frontier squabbles will last the whole history of the empire. Things that could shake the entire empire in a moment had to be much, much bigger. The last thing to really strike on that level, so far as we know from surviving sources, seems like Darius the Great's ascension to power. To review the thing that I come back to constantly, Cambyses was on campaign, Bardia usurped his brother's throne, sort of, Cambyses died, Darius assassinated Bardia and usurped the throne for himself, and then there was a huge civil war. Today's story doesn't have all of that, there aren't many things that do, but it does have the aftermath of a campaign, some usurpation, assassination, brother drama, and maybe even a little civil war. And just as a quick aside, I'm just going to forge ahead with most of the names here. If you want a more thorough introduction to Xerxes' family, you can get that in episode 58. Like any good story from Persian history, we're lacking for details and pulling from a short reference in all of our major Greek sources for this period to get any information at all, so any storytelling is ultimately a bit of a synthesis. But enough preamble. At this point, I'm just stalling so I don't have to do the deed. In 465 BC, Xerxes was back in the imperial heartland of Media, Parsa, Elam, and Babylonia, making his annual rotation through the main royal residences with the passing of the seasons. Based on the Hellenistic Egyptian chronicler Manetho, and a few early Christian sources that probably pulled from Manetho, our story resumes around August or September, and thus could be set in either Susa or Persepolis. So there was Xerxes I, son of Darius, grandson of Histaspes, an Achaemenid, a great king who had a complicated legacy for himself. He had built his own grand palace at Persepolis. He had not only failed to conquer Greece, but seen the Greeks conquer his lands. He had defeated the ancient powers of Egypt and Babylon as his father, grandfather, and uncle had before him. He had defeated the enemies in the east and enforced Ahura Mazda's will over the Daiva worshippers. Aside from one noteworthy blunder in the west, Xerxes had accomplished great things for the Persian Empire, and he doubtlessly planned to do more. Maybe he was plotting a dramatic resurgence in Anatolia, 
or maybe making plans to make up for his western defeats with eastern or northern victories. It had been 15 years since Xerxes went to Greece himself, and in that time, some things had naturally changed at court. Mardonius was dead, and after the disasters with his half-brothers, the house of Gabrius was cut out of court affairs. Preparations in Anatolia and elsewhere had sent new nobles, both royal princes and not, out into the provinces. The western campaigns had taken their toll on the royal court as well. Royal family members had died in combat. Others had either changed roles or simply died as Darius's generation finally passed into history. Xerxes, though, came from a line of men who all died in advanced age. Even Cyrus, who died in battle, was nearly 60 years old. At most 56 himself, Xerxes may have felt like he had a decade or more left to solidify his legacy. On the other hand, Xerxes had lived a life of privilege and comfort, with near-limitless access to every vice imaginable, something that ruined the health of more than one ancient monarch. And of course, as the absolute monarch of the world's greatest power, Xerxes' expectations may not have been a perfect reflection of his own reality. Several classical authors, namely Pompeius Trogus, as retold by Justin, and the philosopher Aristotle, seem to believe that Xerxes was declining in his final days on the throne. Aristotle, in particular, suggests that he may have been suffering from something like early-onset dementia, and could forget important things quickly. However, this depiction is not universal, and in fact, the opposite seems true in Diodorus's and Theseus's more detailed versions of this same story. This is the problem with the classical authors and the death of Xerxes. We have five very short sources, and two of them, Aristotle and Plutarch, are just references within an unrelated text. It's very hard to tell how much similarities like this are due to ancient authors working from a common source, and how much was common across all lost sources. As usual, we work with what we have, and what we have is not always very good. One of the changes since the invasion of Greece was apparently a new captain of the royal guard, the Bivarapatish in Old Persian, Chiliarch in Greek, or just Commander of the Ten Thousand in English. This is usually the title for a commander of some kind of royal guard. In later accounts of the Greek wars, it's pretty clear that the king's guard and Herodotus's immortals are the same thing. During the Battle of Thermopylae, the commander of the immortals was a Persian called Hidarnes, probably the son of Darius's co-conspirator of the same name. By this time, though, the commander of Xerxes' guard was Artabanus, identified as a Hyrcanian by Diodorus. That might be because Hidarnes had been made satrap of Armenia after the war, 
something we'll talk more about in the reign of Xerxes' grandson. As a brief aside, I should also note that this is a new Artabanus. Xerxes' uncle of the same name featured prominently as an advisor at the beginning of the Greek campaign, but that Artabanus was probably dead by 465. I'd love to have some way to keep track of all of the Artabani we're going to see in this podcast, but to be totally honest, we're just kind of stuck with that name for the rest of the show. As commander of the Royal Guard, Artabanus was also one of Xerxes' foremost advisors. To recap, he was the commander of the Standing Army in the Persian Heartland and one of the most influential people at court. Absolutely no way that could ever go wrong. Hey, Stop listening to the history of Rome. Of course, you can probably guess where this is going. What exactly happened next isn't too clear because this is the part where all of our sources have a different set of specific details. The general consensus seems to be that Artabanus conspired with at least one other advisor to kill Xerxes. Theseus, Diodorus, and Justin all agree that Artabanus partnered with an important eunuch court official. Of course, they all give different names. Theseus says Aspimetres, Diodorus says Mithridates, and Justin says Bacabasis. It's possible that these names all refer to the same individual renamed over various retellings, or that there was a larger conspiracy and it was only partially recorded across different sources. Most of the sources implicate Artabanus' sons in the conspiracy as well, though only Justin places them at the scene of the crime. Justin also says there were seven sons, while Theseus says there were three. Personally, I'm inclined to believe Theseus, if only because an assassin and his seven supporters seems just a bit too close to the story of Darius. Meanwhile, Theseus adds an additional player, Megabyzus, the satrap of Assyria and former satrap of Babylon, who has come up a few times in recent episodes. I think Megabyzus is a really interesting figure. The conclusion of his story is a major event in Theseus's Persica, and he was clearly building that narrative. But Megabyzus also features in Herodotus as part of entirely separate events, and is implicated in the Babylonian revolts of 486, something not recorded by any of the Greek sources. The picture that develops is of a man that was deeply involved in the higher echelons of Persian politics, and an important figure throughout Xerxes' reign, who simultaneously faced a run of bad luck in his personal and professional lives. Repeatedly scorned by the royal family, he may have been motivated to join Artabanus' scheme. Given its prominence in the surviving sources, historians of the 19th and 20th century often speculated that Artabanus was exploiting a moment of 
political weakness in the aftermath of the Battle of the Eurymedon. From a purely Greek perspective, it's an easy conclusion to reach. A disastrous battle marked the functional end of a 15-year losing campaign, and then Xerxes was killed within months. But we have to bear in mind that the little slice of territory along the Greek frontier may have been marked by failure, but the rest of the empire was prospering under Xerxes. The cause and effect relationship are not as obvious as they might seem. I personally think Eurymedon and the general failure to protect coastal territory may have been one contributing factor. But other things, like Megabyzus's disenfranchisement from the royal family, the taxes and labor required to expand Persepolis, and even slights against the Egyptian and Babylonian nobility 20 years earlier could all have played into a negative reaction to Xerxes at the end of his life. And that's without the usual disclaimer of who even knows what was happening in the East this whole time? Artabanus, one of the eunuch advisors, and possibly some contingent of Artabanus's sons, entered the palace at night, or at least that's what the Greeks say. Given their position, it's entirely possible they just had to cross one of the inner courtyards from their own apartments into the royal bedchamber. They entered Xerxes' room and murdered him in his sleep. None of the Greeks specify an exact method. Xerxes, Hashaya Arsa, was about 56 years old and had been the great king, the king of lands, the king of Persia, the pharaoh Hashayarusha, and the king of kings, Hashayathia Hashayathia Nam, for 21 years. With that, phase one of this plan was complete. But now, they were a bunch of dicks standing around a dead king with a murder weapon in hand. Even if Artabanus was the commander of the king's guard, this was not going to look great. Fortunately for them, they had a scapegoat picked out in advance. Xerxes' eldest son, the crown prince Darius, was also staying in Susa, if not in the same palace, then in his own residence nearby. Unbeknownst to Darius, still asleep in his own bed, he was technically king, at least for a minute. Darius's younger brother, Artaxerxes, was also in the palace that night. Not even 25 years old yet, the Achaemenid Age of Majority Artaxerxes was pegged as an easy tool to manipulate by the conspirators. Artabanus and co. rushed over to wake up Artaxerxes and informed him that his brother Darius had committed patricide in order to claim the throne for himself. Awoken in a panic with news that his father was dead and surrounded by armed men offering their advice, Artaxerxes followed their counsel. Darius would pay for these crimes, and Artaxerxes would become king. Once again, the different versions of the story diverge briefly. 
but with mostly the same outcome. Justin says Darius too was killed in his sleep on Artaxerxes' command. Diodorus says that Artaxerxes and the royal guard killed Darius in a fight. Theseus says that Darius was brought before Artaxerxes and executed as a captive. Long story short, Darius was dead and Xerxes' other sons were in charge of their own provinces, leaving Artaxerxes the only legitimate Achaemenid at the royal court. This is probably also a good time to point out Aristotle's version of the story. It's just a brief summary of events in his treaty on politics, but the famous philosopher says that Artabanus killed Darius first, and then was surprised that Xerxes was mad at him. He then killed Xerxes to avoid punishment. Obviously, as presented by Aristotle, this story doesn't make any sense at all. Why kill the crown prince? Why wouldn't Xerxes be mad? Probably best to just ignore Aristotle on this one, and really many, many, many other things. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. What followed these assassinations was seven months that the Greek accounts just don't do justice. All of them make it sound like everything happened in a matter of days. That brings us back to Manetho. 
a chronicler writing in Ptolemaic Egypt 200 years later, who compiled a chronology of every Egyptian king he could document. He included Artabanus on this list and gave him a reign of seven months. Justin and Diodorus both suggest that Artabanus had ambitions to the throne, but none of the other Greek sources suggest he ever succeeded in claiming the throne outright. No Babylonian or Egyptian documents survive dated to the reign of Artabanus. Still, some document was circulating in 3rd century BC Egypt to give Manetho the impression that Artabanus was king. And whatever that was, it reflects the fact that Artabanus was king in all but name for a time following his successful coup. We don't know a ton about this period, since asking for specific details about any given seven-month span in Persian history is basically impossible. But one specific event in Greco-Persian history seems like it probably happened in this weird moment of transition. Do you guys remember Themistocles? You know, the Athenian general who rose to power in the 480s as a demagogue railing against the hoplite nobility in favor of the lower classes and a pressing need for a navy the one who led the Hellenic League to victory at Salome, sparking the ultimate downward spiral for Persian naval power in the Aegean. That Themistocles. It's been a while since we heard from him. Last time we saw Themistocles, he'd been pushed out of his own naval command and replaced with the aristocratic leader Xanthippus in 479. To prepare for war, Athens had allowed its many exiles to return home, including Themistocles' most potent political rivals. As military priorities shifted from his homegrown navy to the largely aristocratic army, the aristocrats returned to prominence in 479, but that also made them the men in charge of the Delian League when it started taking shape after the Battle of Mycale. Athenian nobles like Xanthippus, Cimon, and Aristides were able to cement themselves as part of the new political order and hold power away from Themistocles. He tried to leverage his own accomplishments and previous popularity, but his attempts were in vain. In either 472 or 471, he was ostracized, chosen by popular vote in Athens for a 10-year exile, a practice that he had helped cement in Athenian politics 20 years earlier. Themistocles spent the next few years trying to evade the ever-increasing Athenian sphere of influence. First, he settled in Argos, which was about as close to a neutral power between Athens and Sparta as you could get at the time. But that wasn't good enough. The Spartans viewed Themistocles as a potential threat in any future war with Athens, and accused him of aiding Pausanias in his plot to help the Persians invade the Peloponnese. Remember, we're somewhere around 470 at this point, so Pausanias' treason 
was fresh in everyone's mind. The Spartans invoked the old Hellenic League agreements to have Themistocles put on trial for all of Greece, but in a trial held in Athens. Themistocles assessed that he would be found guilty no matter what, and fled to the island of Kirkira before sailing around to Molossia on the northwestern side of Greece. This was as good as an admission of guilt to the Athenian leadership, which confiscated all of his property back in Athens. The Spartans then sent an envoy to Molossia, threatening a renewed Hellenic League invasion of their territory if they sheltered Themistocles. Wanting nothing to do with a Spartan-Athenian invasion, the Molossian king ordered Themistocles to flee again, but at least with provisions and money given to him by the Molossians this time. Now, it's worth noting that both of our sources for this, Diodorus and Plutarch, vehemently believe that Themistocles was brought up on trumped-up charges to destroy his political career and was, in fact, totally innocent. Their agreement has colored the way historians talk about Themistocles for the last 2,000 years. To go against the grain a little bit, he did flee, which always looks guilty as hell even when you are proven innocent later. Back during Xerxes' invasion of Greece, Themistocles also made repeated overtures to the Persians throughout the campaign. His apologists have been making the claim that this was a cunning trap to lure the Persians into defeat for the last 2,500 years. I pointed out during the relevant episodes that modern historians also speculate that he was just hedging his bets so that he would be in Xerxes' good graces if things went poorly for Athens. We also just don't really know what Themistocles was doing beyond Athenian politics during the time of Pausanias' defection to the Persian side. And what happened next certainly doesn't help his case. This is what brings us back to the court of Artabanus, whether Xerxes or Artaxerxes was actually sitting on the throne. After fleeing Molossia at the far-flung edge of the Greek world, Themistocles went to the one place where the great powers of southern Greece couldn't touch him. The Persian Empire. He landed in one of the Greek-held ports on the western side of Anatolia. He made contact with a friend living in Ionia, who smuggled him out of Greek-controlled territory and away from any possible bounty hunters in a covered wagon. The same friend arranged for Themistocles to make contact with the great king. The thing is, it's not entirely clear even to the ancient authors who was king at the time. Plutarch gives a whole litany of his own sources and explains how they are split, saying Xerxes was king in some, and others saying it was Artaxerxes when Themistocles arrives. Plutarch tells a story that might help explain, too. Apparently, when Themistocles ultimately arrived in the Persian heartland, probably at Susa by this point, 
It was Artabanus, rather than the actual king that met the Greek general at first. Plutarch portrays Artabanus as trying to dissuade Themistocles from meeting the king and explaining how the king of kings doesn't just meet with anybody. Themistocles countered by offering to embrace whatever Persian traditions were needed in order to gain an audience. Thucydides adds that Themistocles provided a letter of introduction explaining his circumstances, and offering to serve Artaxerxes with no ill will for any past conflicts with Persia. The sense I get from the story of Themistocles meeting Artabanus and the confusion of Greek historians about who was king at the time is that Themistocles arrived in Asia just before Xerxes was murdered, and maybe reached out to Xerxes first only for his letters to be received by Artabanus after the old king's death. Plutarch was writing a biography of Themistocles, so he doesn't dwell on the Persian court politics very much. But at some point, either while Artabanus was alive or just after he died, Themistocles was given an audience with Artaxerxes, who quickly took a liking to the Greek newcomer. Themistocles was eager to join the court, but asked for one year to familiarize himself with Persian language and customs before taking an active role. Artaxerxes granted this request. No matter the exact timeline, Themistocles would have been a passive observer of the Persian court when Artabanus's coup came crumbling down. The resounding conclusion of all the Greek sources is that Artaxerxes was not as weak-willed as Artabanus expected, and the conspiracy supporting Artabanus was fracturing from the inside. According to Justin, the eunuch advisor Bacabasus wanted regime change, but opposed Artabanus's ambitions to become king himself, and therefore exposed the truth about Xerxes' death to Artaxerxes. Theseus says that it was Megabizus, the satrap of Assyria, who revealed the plot to Artaxerxes. Theseus doesn't say why he did this, but the implication is that Megabizus was somehow spurned by Artabanus, not out of any particular love for the Achaemenids. If we see this as a larger conspiracy that each Greek source was only partially aware of, then it's probable that the anti-Xerxes conspirators divided into pro-Achaemenid and anti-Achaemenid factions. Naturally, the individual accounts diverge again in explaining how exactly Artabanus died. According to Justin, Artaxerxes called for the royal guard to present themselves for inspection. Basically, a routine ceremony where the king checks in to make sure that the army is properly equipped, properly behaved, and can get assembled for a big fancy parade. With the royal guard assembled and Artabanus standing there as commander, Artaxerxes showed up in his own armor, but made a big show of how his armor, presumably newly made for him as king, was too small and ordered Artabanus to trade body armor with him. I guess they were a similar size, or Artabanus had more versatile armor. I, who knows? 
certainly not Justin at any rate. After Artabanus had set down his weapons and taken off his armor, Artaxerxes personally drew his Akinakes and stabbed the murderous Bivara Patish with his own hand. That's one story. Diodorus tells us that Artabanus and his sons tried to brazenly assassinate Artaxerxes themselves, and Artaxerxes was able to put up a fight. Artaxerxes was wounded, but not so seriously that he couldn't fight back. Once again, we are told that Artaxerxes personally killed Artabanus. What exactly happened to his sons in this scenario, we just don't know. Then there's Tisius, who goes into less detail about Artabanus himself, just saying that he met the death he intended for Artaxerxes. What exactly this means is left for us to guess. It's entirely possible that it's an allusion to the same story told by Diodorus. Artabanus died trying to assassinate a third Achaemenid. If that's the case, all of our stories agree that Xerxes himself dealt the killing blow, which is a pretty storybook origin for a king. I guess we could say that Artabanus had sort of, maybe, kinda been the great king, the king of kings, etc., etc., for seven months, at least as reckoned by some records in Egypt 200 years later. Theseus alone carries the story forward from here. He says that the eunuch advisor Aspametres was, quote, cruelly put to death, being exposed in the trough. Theseus doesn't elaborate on this, but a few later references to other Achaemenid executions make scholars think that this was a reference to scaphism, a horrifying execution. Weaker stomachs may want to skip the next few sentences. The victim is bound between two boats, slathered in milk and honey, and forced to eat to the point of bloating. They are then left floating in a river under the hot sun, to die of exposure, bugs, rats, and other vermins all over the course of days. Aspimetres, if Theseus's story is correct died a truly gruesome death. But the deaths of Artabanus and Aspimetres were not the end of Artaxerxes' troubles. In probably the greatest sign that this conspiracy went deeper than just two or three nobles, a brief civil war broke out, either in Susiana or Babylon, depending on the exact movements of the seasonal court. Theseus is light on the details as usual, but given Artabanus' position at the head of the royal guard, it's easy to imagine the immortals splitting themselves into two camps. Artabanus' three surviving sons led a rebel army against Artaxerxes and the Achaemenid loyalist in a pitched battle. All three of the rebels' sons were killed in the fighting, and Megabyzus, who was commanding troops under Artaxerxes, was wounded. The royal family was supposedly distraught over his injuries, but Megabyzus was saved by the timely intervention of a Greek physician, Apollonides of Kos. Apollonides, like Democrates of Croton back in episode 40, was a Greek physician, a medical doctor who had come to find work at the Persian court. 
After saving his life, Apollonides became part of Megabyzus's own household back in Assyria. At the time, the royal family, and of course Megabyzus, praised Apollonides for his skill. We will see that relationship sour in due course. But even then, Artaxerxes' troubles were not over. No sooner were the Artabonid rebels dead than word reached Artaxerxes that his brother, Histaspes, was marching south from Bactria with an army. Histaspes was the satrap of the most important eastern province and the eldest surviving son of Xerxes. Evidently, he felt like his younger brother was usurping his right to the throne. God only knows what was going on in Bactria in the last seven months, and why Histaspes didn't march on the throne as soon as he heard that Xerxes and Darius were dead. Part of it is probably just that it was winter for most of Artabanus' time in power, and the journey from Bactria required hostile terrain under the best circumstances. There's also always the possibility that Artabanus delayed news to Bactria to prevent exactly this response, or that Histaspes was dealing with some unknown threat from the Saka on the northern frontiers or rebels in the mountains. Both were regular problems. At this point, though, Artaxerxes decided that there was no going back and marched his army out to meet his brother in battle. Their first battle was indecisive, but a second apparently took place in or near a desert, somewhere in central Iran. Winds blew up and sprayed sand in the direction of Histaspes' army. Artaxerxes' forces took advantage of this brief distraction and brought the rebellion to an end. Histaspes is never heard from again, and the general assumption is that he was either killed in battle or executed for treason. In fact, Bactria itself drops out of the historical record for almost a century after this, bringing an end to the age of rebellious Bactrian satraps that began with Bardia. With that, Artaxerxes finally got to collapse exhausted on his throne and rule in peace for a few years. His other brothers and half-brothers seemed to get the message. Megabyzus was allowed to return to Syria with Apollonides, and Themistocles' year-long Old Persian immersion program was wrapping up. It was time to get on with building projects, hoarding purple cloth, appointing new satraps, and enjoying the privileges of royalty. And because the swirling vortex of the Greek sources is inescapable, that brings us back to Themistocles. The former arch-nemesis of the Persian navy had learned Persian customs and language to quickly ingratiate himself with Artaxerxes' young court. For a few years, he became Artaxerxes' favorite Greek of the many exiles that had drifted east to Persia in the last few decades, and a regular hunting companion of the king, a very, very rare honor. Though he stayed at court for a few years, Themistocles was also made governor of Magnesia, a slightly inland Greek city on the Meander River and the surrounding territory, which included several smaller Greek cities. In short, he was the latest in a litany of Greek exiles appointed to positions of power 
as a bulwark against Athens. Before long, though, Themistocles' friends in Athens managed to smuggle his wife and children out of the city, along with what remained of their movable wealth, and the heavily Medized Athenian moved to Magnesia himself. While there, he built statues of himself, patronized temples, and installed his children in positions of power. One of his daughters became an important priestess. Several others were married to other Greek exile governors in Artaxerxes' service. His sons took up political positions in his territory, one even becoming the independent governor of the city of Lampascus. Themistocles' family grew enormously wealthy from all the land under their control, and the only condition was that the aging Themistocles would provide his expertise if Artaxerxes ever had to go to war with the Greeks again. In concept, Themistocles seems to have shrugged this off. In his mind, he was still an Athenian, first and foremost. And besides, after the Battle of the Eurymedon, what further conflict could there be? Athens was increasingly busy with domestic concerns, and there were barely any cities left to peel away from Persian control. As a result, it was an unwelcome surprise in 460 BC when Athens threw their support behind a rebel claimant to the thrones of Egypt. That's right, we've got a new king, and that means that Egypt is in rebellion. Again. Again. But that will be the story for next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page for this podcast, where you can find various links to financially support this project. That includes things like one-time payments through Stripe, but also Patreon, where you can sign up for a monthly subscription to get access to things like bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and several other possible benefits at different tiers. You can find that online at patreon.com slash historyofpersia as well. Of course, there are non-financial ways you can support the podcast, and I'll go so far as to say they're the best ones. Tell other people about the show. Tell people how much you love learning about the history of Persia. Tell people about the weird stories like a magical priest impersonating a king and being overthrown in a bloody civil war. You can direct them to find me online at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 